Um, we're not going to be talking about the events surrounding the resurrection. We're not going to be talking about the empty tomb, uh, the appearance to the women who'd gone to prepare the body. Um, if you'll pardon the expression, we're not going to be looking at the ABCs of the resurrection. I'm pretty certain everybody in here can probably tell me at least a summary of the events that happened on resurrection morning, right? I mean, if you've been in church for at least two years, you've probably heard this story at least twice. Right. So this morning, I want to consider the resurrection from the perspective of a 21st century Christian. That's important because how many of you are 21st century Christians? That'd be everybody, right? So we need to, we need to take this, and, and I'm not saying that the, the facts about the resurrection, the, the history of the resurrection, I'm not saying those are unimportant. <clears throat> but... It's too easy to reach back into the scripture and look at the history and look at the facts and miss the significance of this doctrine for the Christian life today. I know y'all are thinking if you're not physically shaking your head, mentally you are shaking your head saying how is it that anybody could ignore the importance of what Jesus did when he rose from the dead. Well, let me ask you this question. Outside of Sundays, when we gather after the tradition of the disciples who were present when the resurrection happened, and by the way, just a synopsis, I've had a lot of people ask me the question, why do we meet on Sunday? Why don't we keep the Sabbath on Saturday? Okay, a lot of people have asked me that question. You ever wonder that? I've wondered that, right? Number one, our calendar Saturday has as much to do with the seventh day of creation as that table has to do with my car, okay? Our calendar has almost zero correlation to the calendar of creation. Number two, during the exile, the, the Babylonian exile of the southern kingdom of Judah, the Jews adopted a different calendar than they originally had. They transitioned the calendar that God gave them to a lunar calendar. And they started observing the Sabbath according to the lunar calendar, not necessarily according to the calendar that God had established. Okay? Number three. How many of us actually think of today as the first day of the week? I don't. As a matter of fact, what do we call Saturday and Sunday? The weekend, right? The first day of the week is the day that I need coffee hooked up by mainline to an artery in order to function. That's Monday, right? So why do we meet on Sunday? Well, number one, functionally, Sunday is the seventh day of our week. Number two, our calendar has no correlation to the Old Testament calendar. Number three, when the resurrection occurred, the believers started gathering to celebrate the resurrection 
on the first day of their week, which we have carried through to Sunday. Simple as that. So we gather because of the resurrection, right? It's the whole reason we come together on Sunday. And this Sunday in particular, because it's Resurrection Sunday, according to the calendar of the Western Church, which, by the way, don't gasp in horror, we did adopt from the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Because the Eastern Church, the Greek Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox Church, next week is their Resurrection Sunday. So in the Western Church, today is the day that we celebrate the resurrection. So outside of every Sunday when we come together, and you're kind of forced to recognize the the resurrection because of the subject of what we're doing, and today, because it's Resurrection Sunday, does the resurrection impact your life in a meaningful way the rest of the year? Yeah, Yeah, it should. Otherwise, I wouldn't ask that question, right? But does it? Is there anything about the resurrection that changes the way you look at the world on a daily basis? Now, I love y'all, and I know y'all. Y'all are good church-going people, and we think churchianity a lot, right? So before you just nod your head with the Sunday school answer of, Of course the resurrection impacts the way I think about the world. Step back and think about the way you interact with the people that you encounter on a day-to-day basis. Either in-person interactions, the people that you work with, the people you share a space with, or impersonal encounters like when you're in traffic, especially that one, um... Drive-through media or drive-through windows at a restaurant, right, on the phone or via social media online, right? Honestly, and not just because you feel like the answer has to be yes or you're not a good Christian, because we condition ourselves that way, can you really say that the resurrection changes the way you act. I expect most of us are going to, we're going to go with that gut reaction. Well, it should. And then we're going to feel terrible because the fact of the matter is it really doesn't. And it should. You're not alone. If I'm being candid with you, which I always am, I try to be very transparent with you guys, I don't always pay attention to the fact of the resurrection and what it means for who I am today in this life. However, today's a great day for us to tune our thoughts a little bit closer to what God says about it. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important element of the gospel message. Let me tell you, there are some people who would hang me just for saying that. There are people who would go absolutely berserk. No, the important part of the gospel message is the atonement. Jesus' death on the cross. And I disagree. 
To show you what I'm talking about, if you've turned to, to Romans 1, 1 through 7, go ahead and stand with me as I read this this morning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we study this passage again this morning, this isn't the first time we've looked at this, help us to grab a hold of and, and to latch on to the fact that the resurrection is the anchor of our faith. Help us to pay attention to it. Help us to let it change the way we live, the way we act, and the way we love people. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Please have a seat. So the first thing I did when I hit this passage, and I decided this is where we're going this morning, was I went back through all of my old notes to figure out how long ago it was that we went through the book of Romans. Anybody want to take a guess? 24 May of 2015 was when we did this passage. 24 May 2015. And during the intro to that book, I pointed out that most, if not all, biblical scholars consider Paul's letter to the Roman church to be his magnum opus, his systematic theology textbook, the most in-depth treatment of Paul's understanding of theology. Now, I have taken, uh, in the course of my bachelor's degree and my, my first master's degree, I have taken four classes on systematic theology. Two at the bachelor's level that were kind of a, a high flyover systematic theology and two at the master's level that would make your ears bleed and your eyeballs hurt. And there's a lot of work that goes into covering a systematic theology. Uh, the very first systematic theology textbook that I purchased for my bachelor's degree was probably that thick. It was thicker than any Bible I have on the shelf in my house. And it was not large print. And there were not a lot of wasted pages. You know, sometimes you'll have pages where there's a blank page or two in between chapters. No. There were pages of footnotes for other textbooks that had been cited. There was all kinds of stuff. And the intro to the book, the first chapter, was a, a, a chapter that set up and explained uh, the, the words that come before. Okay, so the, the presuppositions that the theologian is starting with. Because everybody has presuppositions, right? So this chapter was probably 40 or 50 pages on the things that we take for granted as Christians, right? Well, Paul doesn't start with his things that come before. 
he starts his letter, because it's a letter, with an introduction. He's introducing himself to the people of Rome who receive his letter. But he sneaks a huge point of theology, in fact, a specific area of theology called Christology, right into the introduction. He also covers ecclesiology, which is the study of the church in theology, and, uh, and a couple other things too. Normally, theologians take pages to explain and to go through all of the different reasons why we can start with this point. Paul, of course, being the king of run-on sentences, uh, not his fault, Greek did not have punctuation, he does it all in one sentence that would make modern English teachers twitch. He introduces himself in verse 1 as a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That right there is a summary of Paul's mission statement. That's who I am. That's what I exist for. I'm an apostle, I'm a servant of Christ, and I've been set apart for the purpose of the good news of God, the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? A couple of different ways to look at it. If it's, if it's the gospel of God as in the gospel about God, then it's about God's grace. It's about God's mercy. There are those who read that in the Greek, not the gospel about God, Rather, the gospel that belongs to God. It's God's good news. It's not my good news, though it's good news for me. It's God's story. All of Paul's life, after his conversion, was framed in this context. Everything that he did that we have recorded in Scripture. Now, again, I said this the last couple of weeks when we were talking about... um, Jesus and the disciples in the book of Matthew, that the disciples probably didn't understand the full implication of what it meant when they said Jesus was the Son of God, right? That they probably didn't consciously stop to think about Jesus being sinless. They probably didn't stop to think about the full impact of everything he said. Well, there was probably times where Paul was dealing with the equivalent of sitting in traffic. I'd imagine with all of the travel that he did as he was entering into Damascus, not when he got knocked off of his horse, but later on, when he was entering into the city of Damascus, if there was a traffic jam, he probably shuffled his feet and grumbled and complained like the rest of us would. But everything in his life was framed in the context of being an apostle, being set apart for God's good news. So he keeps going here in this run-on sentence with a clarification of the gospel. He says that it was promised before <clears throat> through the prophets. Which prophets? In Hebrew context, the prophets, generally speaking of uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, and you can even go as far as uh, Jeremiah, and um, the minor prophets, the twelve Minor prophets, I'm not going to list them all. I've never memorized them. I will miss one or two, and my kids will pitch a fit. So I'm just going to say all of them. However, 
Those aren't the only prophets. Moses was considered a prophet because he spoke God's word to the people, right? So basically what Paul is talking about is from Moses to Malachi, the message of the gospel has been there. From, from Moses to Malachi, do you know what that is? That's, that's the Old Testament, right? Moses represents Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Malachi, the Italian prophet, also known as Malachi. That was a joke. Just check to see if you're still alive. All right, Malachi was the final prophet who spoke somewhere around 400 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. Now, he was not the last prophet under the Old Covenant. Well, point of trivia, who was the last prophet under the Old Covenant? John the Baptist, very good. He was actually listed as the greatest prophet. But Paul says that in the entirety of the Jewish scriptures, the gospel has been present. It's always been there. Now, have you ever heard somebody teach that the church is plan B? Yeah, there's a lot of people out there who, who will tell you that God's original plan was the Jews. Actually, we would be plan C. God's original plan was for Adam and Eve to just be obedient. But then they went and sinned, so he had to have a backup plan, which was the people of Israel, starting with Abraham. So that was his backup plan. And then when the Jews re- rejected Jesus, then he had to reach into the drawer and pull out plan C, and that was the church. I don't like that way of thinking, especially based on what Paul says here. (laughs) Let's see here. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul says it's always been there. We're not God's backup, backup plan. Paul makes it very clear, especially here in the book of Romans, that the church is always spiritual Israel. We don't replace national Israel. National Israel doesn't mean anything to God. Since when does he care about a person's nationality? Never. Spiritual Israel has always been God's plan, and the church has always been part of that. So then he goes on, and he says that this good news that God promised through the scriptures is concerning his son, Jesus. Yeshua. The English translation of that is actually better as Joshua. And he says that Jesus is descended from David by the flesh, according to the flesh. Now, I started chasing this rabbit, trying to understand what Paul's talking about. So I went to, I went to Matthew, and I went to Luke, and I looked up the genealogies, and I'm trying to nail down what does he mean, descended from David according to the flesh, blah, 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 blah. Way too much to talk about because there's discrepancies between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy. 
So if you go back to the original church fathers, the, the people who were around the first couple hundred years after Christ, they tried to answer that question by saying, well, see, what happened was Matthew gave Joseph's genealogy, but Luke gave Mary's genealogy. You ever heard that? Yep, that's very popular. Uh, it's not really well-founded, but it's very popular. Uh, and then there's others who came up with other answers, and you know, Matthew, Matthew excluded people because of the curse that happened here, and, and blah, 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 blah. The point of the matter is, did Joseph have, any, have anything at all to do with the birth of Jesus? Nothing. Right? Now, where do we know that from? We know that from Scripture, right? So let's let's put our, our our we're living in the middle of life going on, right? You have Joseph, who's a carpenter. He's probably 31, 32 years old. He's engaged to this 14, 15-year-old young maiden who's never known a man, right? And all of a sudden, she turns up pregnant. Okay? Now, I may be just a simple... Minded, idiot, raised on a farm, but I know where kids come from. Okay? Now, Joseph can stand up and, and swear all day long that, no, God did it. Right? And Mary can stand up all day long and say, no, God did it. And everybody in Nazareth is going to say, uh-huh, Sure. Right? I've got to tell you. The fact of the matter is, Joseph raised Jesus as his son. As far as everybody knew, Jesus was his son. Does it matter that he did not actually provide the XY chromosomes for Jesus' conception? No. He raised Jesus as his own. <coughs> and so according to the flesh, he looks like Joseph's son, he talks like Joseph's son, he acts like Joseph's son, he, he followed in Joseph's footsteps, he's Joseph's son. Legally. So according to the flesh, he was a descendant of David through his adopted father, Joseph. But then, and this is where we need to switch our thinking caps on, as we keep reading here, this is in verse 3, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh, verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was God's declaration to the people. This was because the human race is really a bunch of knuckleheads. All right. When Jesus showed up on the scene and John the Baptist is doing his baptisms and Jesus goes into the water and John fights with him, right? John argues with him. No, 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 no. This ain't right. You don't have any sin to repent from. I do. You baptize me. 
Jesus said, no, John, you're the prophet. I'm part of Israel. It needs to happen this way for all righteousness to be completed. Right? So, John, okay, John dunks him, brings him up out of the water, and what happens? One of the few occasions in Scripture that it is recorded that God audibly speaks to people. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right? Anybody who was present should have heard that. Fast forward. Okay? Now, who was present when that happened? Well, um, Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples. Andrew was there. Andrew heard that. Okay? Andrew went and told his brother. Who's Andrew's brother? <coughs> we all know how absorbent uh, his head is. Right? So, Peter goes to the Mount of Transfiguration where he sees Jesus glorified. And he sees Jesus talking to people. Who's he talking to? And Moses, representing the law and the prophets. <coughs> they disappear, and again, from heaven, we hear God's voice. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, not just hear, actively listen. Well, Peter really did that, right? Even with those two audible announcements, even with all of the miracles that Jesus performed, turning the water into wine. Yes, it was wine. Okay? It would have been an even bigger miracle if he had turned the water into Welch's. But he didn't. <coughs> Raising the dead. Giving sight to the blind. Hearing to the deaf. Delivering people from demonic oppression. All of these things. You have, at the very least, the 11 disciples who were faithful to Jesus. When he gets arrested, 10 of them did what? They scattered. They went and hid. They went and hid in the upper room. They locked the door because they were afraid the Romans were going to come for them next. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Right? Why would they do that? Yeah. He's dead. Now, I may be superimposing a human attitude on God. This could be on the border of blasphemous, and, and I will repent from it if I absolutely need to. But there are times I swear God is looking down on humanity, and he goes, oh, for the love. I know I made you smarter than this. I know I made you so you could see the truth. But sin causes us to ignore it. And so, Jesus dies, and even though he's told the disciples, I'm going to raise on the third day, I'm going to be raised on the third day, I'm going to be raised on the third day, 
Okay, knock, knock, podium kick. This is on the test, right? Up until the time he showed up, they didn't believe him. What does it mean that Jesus didn't stay dead? This was God's declaration that this is my son. Okay? Yay. He's already told us that. This was God's declaration that Jesus' death was sufficient to atone for the sins of God's people. The resurrection was the evidence of Jesus' sinlessness. Again, the guys that lived with Jesus, you know, sitting around the campfire, seeing how he was a human being and he had a digestive system, what happens when people eat high-fiber diets? I really don't imagine when Jesus had flatulence around the campfire that the people were thinking he was sinless. But he was human. The resurrection said death couldn't hold him. He had not earned it. Paul goes on later to say that the wages of sin is death. As as much as I would really like for this to happen, the, the Defense Accounting and Finance Service or Finance and Accounting Service if they were to pay me somebody else's paycheck, I would have to turn that back in because I haven't earned it. And if I didn't turn it in, then I'd go to jail. Jesus didn't earn death. His life was perfect. Now, there are times where we get a little bit warped in our way of thinking. So we think, okay, of course Jesus was sinless. He was divine. I'm not talking about Jesus in his divine nature. I'm talking about Jesus in his human nature. Because it wasn't Jesus' divine nature that died. Can God die? Thank you. <laughs> That's one heresy we can mark off the list. <coughs> it was Jesus' human nature that underwent death. It was Jesus' human nature that was raised from the dead, which means in his humanity, he was sinlessly perfect. He was perfectly righteous. Death had no hold over his flesh. If the resurrection hadn't happened, what would that mean? Now, this is a purely academic exercise, okay? Because if the resurrection hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here, right? <clears throat> there, there would be no scriptures for us to read, because the only people who would be holding on to any scripture would be the Jews holding on to the Old Testament, right? 
there would be no praise songs to sing. There would be no reason for us to be gathered here to worship. We would have no hope of our own future. There would have been no reason for anybody to believe that Jesus wasn't just a man. Okay? So we understand that his death paid the price for our sins, right? But if his death was just sufficient, if his death was just sufficient to pay for our sins, and he took those sins on himself, what would have happened? He would have stayed dead because he would have taken on the death that we had earned. Right? So his life wasn't just sufficient. It was beyond sufficient. It's because of the resurrection that we have any proof of our salvation. We have proof of the fullness of Jesus' righteousness. We can understand that he was so perfect. Now, now, I have a hard time with the word perfect, right? Do you know why I have a hard time with the word perfect? Because in this world, I don't know what perfect is. In this world, perfect is really good. But Jesus was perfect, perfect. His righteousness wasn't just sufficient. It was sufficient plus. Well, that's good. That means he couldn't just pay the, the price for all the sins that had been committed, but for all the sins that would be committed by God's people. Well, that's a good thing, because I wasn't past tense when Jesus died. I was future tense. But there was still more righteousness left. His righteousness was so full. Uh, I, I've, I've seen people use the analogy talking about uh, holiness and, and how it gets polluted by even just one sin. You take a glass of water and you put a, a, an eyedropper of sewage in it. Right? It may still look clear, but you don't want to drink it. Right? So, well, Jesus' righteousness was so pure that it neutralized the sewage. And you could still drink it and suffer no harm. His perfection was so big. And Scripture tells us that when, when we come to that point of faith in Christ, we come to that point where we accept God's grace, we recognize God's grace in our lives, and we come to that point of faith in Christ where we are joined with Him and we have salvation, His righteousness gets put on my account. My unrighteousness has been taken care of, all of it, and I get Jesus' righteousness. What does that mean for me? That means when I die, guess what? Death can't hold me either. Wrap your head around that for just a second. Because of Jesus' resurrection, 
we have the guarantee of the resurrection. Have you ever said the Apostles' Creed? You ever heard the Apostles' Creed? Right? At the very end of the Apostles' Creed, it says that I believe in the bodily resurrection. Newsflash. That's not talking about Jesus' resurrection. That's talking about our resurrection. I will not stay dead in the flesh because of Jesus. Now, that, that might be hard for us to wrap our heads around because what happens to people when their bodies die? Their bodies decay, their bodies go in the ground, or they, if they choose to go through the process of cremation, then, then their bodies are burned, and the, the composite chemicals, the ash, is, is then sprinkled or spread. Or uh, Danny once told a story about a guy who, who was, uh, uh, he, he flew crop dusters. So folks hired him to spread the, the ashes from a, a crop duster, and the guy screwed up and, and like, opened the door too soon. And so the ashes blew back in the plane. So, you know, those ashes didn't quite get spread the way they were supposed to. Instead, they got spread all over the pilot. Kind of a blowback sort of thing, right? And for those of you that are twitchy about cremation, all right, I understand. There's a lot of discussion and debate about that. But the fact of the matter is, God created the universe from what? Nothing. If God created the universe from nothing, I'm pretty sure he can recreate or give me that glorified body even if I don't leave him any pieces to deal with. There you go. Otherwise, all those sailors who died on the Titanic and all those World War I, World War II battleships out there in the middle of the ocean that have long since become fish food and then those fish have died and decomposed and become part of the ocean currents, They'd have a hard time looking forward to the resurrection, but they can if they're in Christ. We have hope of bodily resurrection because of Jesus' righteousness. We have received God's grace. We've received the Holy Spirit's indwelling. We've received our call and command to make disciples, just like Paul has. And we have the power and the ability to minister to people in the name of Jesus, all because of the resurrection. When we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we celebrate everything about our faith. Everything. So, let me go back to that question that I asked at the beginning. Does the resurrection impact the way you think about and interact with other people? If your answer is, not all the time, then let me tell you, and I'm talking to myself here too, we need to get a better handle on what it means to be Christians. Because the resurrection is the focal point of our faith. It is the evidence of everything that Jesus did. So if you live your life as a believer, if you live your life as a Christian, if you claim the name of Christ ever, then the answer is, does the resurrection impact your life? Is yes. Yes, it does. Now, how do we make sure that it impacts the way we interact with people? Well, that's, that's an easy and a hard answer. 
It's an easy answer because the answer is very, very, very evident. The answer is we need to live on purpose. We need to live like life is something that we have a purpose in. We need to live on that mission. As you go, make disciples. That means we have to be disciples. That means we have to pray for people. That means we have to minister to people who are in need, whatever that need might be. That means we have to put our selfishness, our pride, all of that stuff that is me off to the side and focus on who Jesus is. That's the easy answer. That is an easy answer, isn't it? So what do I mean by it's a hard answer? It's hard to put feet on because we have the flesh daily to fight against. So when you feel yourself struggling against the flesh, I challenge you, stop for a minute and think about the resurrection. Think about what the resurrection means to your life in Christ.